everyone. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast. I'm James Lindsay, and we're going to talk about how to fight the woke or what's going on with fighting the woke. There are a variety of different factions now that the fight against woke ideology is finally actually gaining some ground. Um, I recently wrote an article that's most of what I'm going to talk about today, which is uh, the values of a post-woke world. And I'm going to try to give an argument for a values-driven opposition to the woke, not just like tactics. I talk a lot about tactics, whether we mock it, whether we stand up, whether we show up, whether we get organized. I'm talking kind of bigger picture today. And so there are a number of different factions. We'll start here that have kind of arisen mostly on the internet. It's mostly forum dorks um, who get involved in this kind of stuff, you know, like philosophy enthusiasts who write on forums and get mad on social media a lot. Uh, mea culpa, I guess, maybe for myself. I don't know. But there are a variety of different approaches. And we can kind of look at three sort of big, broad, sweeping uh, general ones. One is kind of the respectable approach, which I call the very smart people approach. I don't think it works. In fact, I think that if we look at the, the, the analogy of the red pill and blue pill from the matrix, they are the blue pilled people. They are the people who are like, no, 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 let's keep the matrix. You know, um, they're not quite, you know, whatever the cipher or whatever the guy was that betrayed them and wanted to go back in and have a stake. They're not quite like that. They're people who were presented with the choice by Morpheus to take the red pill or the blue pill. And they were like, mm, blue pill's all right. And so they just took it and they woke up back in their beds the next day and they didn't realize that the world has actually changed out from under them and they're just going to continue to operate within the assumptions that are laid out by the dialectical or in today's lingo woke left. Um, some of them are legitimately what I call crypto woke. They are they actually uh, hold a number of the assumptions and positions and mostly most importantly, the dialectical uh, assumption of kind of wokeness itself or the underlying uh, left, uh, what's the right word, even metaphysics, I guess, this whole mentality on the left that you're going to make society better and better. It's kind of progressive view. And I don't think that these people are going to be very effective. I think that they're having their respectability leveraged against them. They're afraid to say things that need to be said. We see it often in the shape that they won't talk about certain topics that need to be talked about forthrightly. We see it also in that they are uh, unwilling to name names of people who need to be called out. They're unwilling to call for just punishments or just answers to uh, misbehavior. You don't see them, for example, saying that Nicole Hannah-Jones at the New York Times needs to resign or be fired, which is true. She's completely abused her position. She's brought more shame and embarrassment to the New York Times than anybody who's worked there, maybe since Walter Durante, uh, when he was covering up the Holodomor uh, during Stalin's takeover. Um Real, I mean, the, the New York Times has had a pretty ugly past anyway, but very few people have abused the position that they got as Nicole Hannah-Jones, who created the 1619 Project and has become kind of the de facto bully editor of the New York Times. She needs to go. And you won't find the very smart people willing to just straight up say they need to go. The people like uh, Allison Collins at the San Francisco School Board, that there was a massive campaign. It took so much work and so much effort unbelievable amount of effort to get this person who has consistently demonstrated massive racial bias, including many of the cardinal sins that you're not allowed to commit by woke standards. Just getting any any real accountability brought to that person is virtually impossible. So these respectability crowd people are not going to step up to the challenge. They're not going to do it. They don't have what it takes because they're not willing to call for 
hey, maybe we should actually take steps to take the money out from under this. If you're an alumnus of a university, your university has changed. Stop donating. Stop donating and give them the way out. We'll give money again when you go 100% committed to getting this ideology out of higher education, out of this institution that I used to know, I used to love, and is no longer what I used to want, used to go to, no longer what I can support. You want me to support it again? Get it back to what it was. I would love to have that. You know, that kind of an attitude is necessary. Even calling for state action, whether it's with these bills to um, prohibit the teaching of certain divisive concepts, as the phrasing has kind of evolved, that ban the racial stereotyping, scapegoating, and discrimination inherent in critical race theory, for example, that ban positioning the system in which we live, in other words, the country or state, or even the entire kind of Western liberal logic in which we operate as being fundamentally racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever other thing, they're not willing to make absolute calls that say, look, this maybe needs to be dealt with legislatively. This needs to be done. Some power has to be applied back in the other direction to remove the the power that this ideology has has stolen and claimed for itself. So the respectability crowd, the very smart people, are too smart for this. It doesn't look good to their to their compatriots. It's not in alignment with the way that the left likes to solve problems. It doesn't focus enough on the so-called marketplace of ideas and this kind of ideal situation. And granted, I love the idea that the marketplace of ideas would be the solution to a liberal uh, within a liberal system. The problem is that our system is already not liberal. The problem is that our system has already failed to be liberal, and until you can't use liberal solutions in an illiberal system. You have to re- regain a liberal standing first, and this is the fundamental mistake that the very smart people make. Well, another one, not to harp on them too much, another problem, or another approach, I really should say I think it's a problem, is this, uh, I don't want to get too into this because I want to actually do the diligence of spending a little more time. I have read and I have spoken with some of the people involved. Um, but the so-called neo-reactionary approach, uh, I refer to it as kind of postmodern traditionalism or pomotrad. Uh, I'll probably do some kind of an episode at some point discussing why I think it's pomotrad. Um, it's largely the postmodernism of Baudrillard, actually. It's this kind of uh, desert of the real feeling. Nothing is real. Everything is LARP. Everything is live action role playing. That's what LARP stands for. Everything is pretend. Everything is performance. So we're going to perform tradition. We're going to talk about traditional values that maybe we don't really believe, but we believe them in a weird archetypal sense. Or maybe we do really believe them or we uphold them or we at least enact them. You know, traditional performativity, pomotrad. That, so I've called it that. They've called themselves dark enlightenment or neo reactionaries. They're generally. You know, the more reasonable among them are people who support the idea that we kind of see liberalism itself as the problem. They share this in common with the woke, that liberalism was a failed experiment where the woke see that it leads inevitably to fascism. The um, neo-reactionaries see that, that liberalism leads inevitably to communism, which, of course, ends up being uh, totalitarian. Both of these things end up being totalitarian in the end. And so they are both views, sometimes they call themselves post-liberals, that view liberalism as having failed. And um, I don't think that they're right about this. I think that I think that the people, <laughs> I hate to be this kind because it sounds like I'm an ideologue, but the truth is that I think that the, the, the bargain with liberalism has always been that you have a republic as long as you can keep it. 
that liberalism works as long as people are willing to stand up for it. And I think that it's not liberalism, but liberals who became soft and became weak and forgot the charge at the heart of their um, mission. So these kind of I'm trying to not call them pomo trads, but it keeps coming into my head. These um, these neo-reactionary types generally have the wrong idea. They think that we should abandon liberalism and go back to something like the kind of more reasonable ones are kind of like a very traditional order, usually based in religion. This starts slipping real quick to people who want monarchs. They literally want to go back to kings, which, um, you know, in feudal society under that, I would suppose. Uh, you know, you, you have very prominent thinkers within their movement. You often hear Mencius Moldbug is the name that comes up. His real name is Curtis Yarvin. I, I know him. I've spoken with him at length. I think he's a very interesting and very, very smart guy. And he says that it's the ascension of the worthy. So he still believes in merit, which is key. And I think we're going to find that I have a lot in common with that. And, but there's, there's still some important daylight between our views because my view is not illiberal or anti-liberal as his would be. And he's one of the most um, probably eloquent and reasonable uh, articulators of what's going on in this ideology. I don't like a lot of his solutions. I think they're a bit extreme, but I think his analysis is spot on about how left society, left-wing society, or in society in general have been susceptible to left-wing thought, in particular this kind of ratcheting leftward, he calls it Chulu swimming leftward. And um, I respect his thought a lot. I have taken quite a bit from it and found it to be very valuable. Um, he and I have had very productive conversations. But, you know, we have people who are now leaning more toward monarchy or return to monarchy. I've heard people that are kind of in the Catholic wing of this movement, and granted, we're getting more extreme, calling for it being time to have another Inquisition. And so they want a kind of very strict Catholic order imposed upon the world. Um, which might or might not work out. I know, you know, we worked pretty hard to get away from that, whether you're Protestant or whether you are uh, kind of a liberal citizen of the West. We worked pretty hard to get away from the uh, enforced Catholic order for reasons that were pretty good. The church itself got corrupt because holding lots of power like that tends to be corruptive over time and or corrupting anyway. And so we can go further, though. You find these folks frequently defending um, Franco and Pinochet. Franco was a dictator who took over in Spain. Um, very kind of uh, brutal character, bombed his own people, etc. To his credit, he did uh, resist where, say, France did not. Um, the encroachment of especially communism. But really a brutal guy. And if you talk to a lot of Spaniards who are not kind of right wing, they're not huge fans of Franco. Uh, he didn't bring all good and corruption followed in his wake. Pinochet was a murderer. He was in Chile. And so, yeah, these are these kind of bloody rulers who stepped in and were able to resist communism, but at what cost? And I don't think these people are thinking realistically if they're holding up characters like Franco and Pinochet as role models, uh, I don't think that's a realistic approach to getting to a post-woke world. It is, maybe. Maybe we will get to a post-woke world, but the problem is that it's a post-woke world that very few people actually want to go to. And in fact, I think they would be, if placed under its boot, less happy about having it 
than they think. They would have to just rationalize it and would just rationalize it, as all ideologues will, as better than the alternative, better than what we avoided, the woke communist takeover. And, you know, whatever. And then it gets even more extreme than that. I have actually spoken in person. This is how my whole giant James is an anti-Semite explosion came up on Twitter, was that I, without revealing any details, told the story of how I encountered at least one, but actually I've talked to a couple of these guys who are not like weird, you know, not like some grubby right-wing goofballs. These are actually, you know, professionals. And they were actually defending Hitler and being what I, given what I do, you know, I, I just actually had a podcast on this, this channel, a new discourses podcast. There's no good chapter of Hitler's Mein Kampf was the title. And people showed up in the chat and the comments in the YouTube video associated with that podcast where we put it out on YouTube and we're saying, where was Hitler wrong? Where was Hitler wrong? So there is a very radical, maybe they're mostly shitposting. I don't know. Um, maybe they're just trying to get a reaction. Maybe they're trolling, but some of these people I talked to in person were not. They, you know, said that they did think that Hitler went too far, but at least he knew how to stop communists. And that's not really a great sentiment. And I grant that that's not the mainstream sentiment in this neo-reactionary movement, but it is their right fringe. It is if you follow something like uh, Talib's law of the of of the least tolerant or the most intolerant, it's that kind of thing that will push harder and harder if that movement gains more traction. It will be very hard for the more moderate faction of this neo-reactionary ideology to challenge that. So what you often hear, though, just to go away from this crazy fringe, Franco, Pinochet, Hitler, dictators, monarchs, kings, everything's going to go back to this glorious past that never existed. Um, I'll point out also just briefly that they tend to believe, why I call them pomotrads, is that they tend to believe that because of the nature of the world that we live in, that power is the most relevant thing. Uh, a guy in on Twitter, just some guy, I think, I don't know, maybe significant, defended the neo-reactionary ideology by saying that, that freedom is a social construct and that power is ultimately all that it comes down to. This is a very Foucauldian idea. Okay. You have another one, this, this young Romanian woman, as far as I can tell, um, maybe she's not as young. I'm guessing she looks young, uh, is arguing, you know, that everything is, is live action role play. Everything is performance and, you know, traditionalism is performance. She has this blog about it. And what she's actually talking about is Baudrillard's desert of the real. This is very postmodern. Um, and I, I've openly said that I think the postmodernists have a lot of great, analyses of a world that's lost touch with its authenticity. But if we want to build a movement that's going to build a better world, we have to get in touch with authenticity, not further out of touch. We have to embrace authenticity and move away from things that see the desert of the real as the actual state that we live in. This is an illusion, by the way. This is pessimism and cynicism taking over your mind. It's nihilism taking over how you live your life. It is the inability to go inside of yourself and realize where meaning actually lives. And we can talk at some point at length. I wrote a book nobody knows about. I've sold very few copies um, back in 2016 called Light in the Light of Death, where I talk about my idea of where meaning resides. And I make the argument in brief that meaning resides locally. Uh, religions try to place it kind of in this giant universal sense. We have this kind of talos of serving God. This There's a whole 
grand purpose to the universe that we are an intricate part of and God uses us and so on and so forth. I don't particularly subscribe to that view as I wouldn't since I don't believe in God. Uh, the woke and the communists and all the Hegelians with their historicism and broadly speaking, the kind of young Hegelian tradition marching forward since the 1830s and 40s or thereabouts, 20s maybe, um, following some of the ideas of, of Hegel, who I argue is deeply concerned with the roots of wokeness, kind of the kind one of the key roots of wokeness, um, have this belief that history has a teleology to it, history has a purpose, and it is our job to cause history to unfold through this dialectical process. When I called them the dialectical left earlier, this is what I was talking about. And history has a trajectory that we spiral through history to get to. And we do that through the dialectical process of confronting every single idea, every thesis with its antithesis, with its contradiction, and then seeking the synthesis as a higher order understanding of the thing until finally we perfect all the ideas at which point the utopia will emerge. And this is ultimately the idea behind communism, is that when we do this with the economy, when we reveal all the contradictions of, of capitalism, capitalism will give way it will crumble under its own the weight of its own contradictions, and we will have sublated out of this. Sublation is the word that uh, translates in the Marxist literature the German Alphaben, which I've talked about frequently, which is to negate but to keep. It is the process of the dialectic. So when we when we get all the contradictions of, of communism or capitalism out, then we will sublate into a socialist state where the proletariat, realizing its oppression under capitalism, will want to take charge of its own affairs and will establish a state to do so. And then those ideas, the economy, the material conditions of the world will continue to improve through this dialectical process until at some point the state realizes it's no longer necessary to continue its function. The socialist state will dissolve into communism and the utopia will be upon us. That is communism. That is the communist ideology. That is the religious view at the heart of communism. Same thing with the woke. These neo-Marxist liberationists thought if we did this with all of the different cultural contradictions, whether that's systems of power and racism, whether it's systems of power and imperialism, colonialism, uh, the oppression of women and minorities and da-da-da-da-da, and also consumer capitalism and how consumer capitalism takes it. If we bring up all those contradictions, we get everybody to do this dialectical process and pull it to the next stage, then wham, we'll end up in a liberated consciousness. And then that's going to lead people with liberated consciousness to try to seize control of the world, mostly the means of cultural production and social control. And then eventually those ideas will get perfected by continuing to turn the dialectical ratchet. And on the other side, we end up with a liberated world, a government, as a Herbert Marcuse says, that has never existed and does not exist anywhere in the world. And it will be a utopia. That's the view from within the woke. And I honestly don't remember they're going to total rant about that where I came, how I got to that from the Pomo trads. But um, I don't agree with the idea that we can nip that ridiculous fantasy in the bud and replace it with some other ridiculous fantasy. Um, this is all a lack of authenticity. That's where I got to it. This is all hearkening. Both of these sides are hearkening to a lack of authenticity. They are I mean, the blue-pilled respectability people have a lack of authenticity, too. They have to keep up the country club, club pretense. They have to be cool. They have to be acceptable to their peers. They have to have the right opinions and the left opinions, and that's a pun, um, in order to be acceptable by their their people, their, their country club, their clique. 
they can't step outside of that because, and if somebody does, Lord help them. I mean, let me look at me, ye fallen. Uh, they're deplorable. They're um, R-worded. They have to be thrown out of the country club and they have to be absolutely excommunicated from the circles of respectability. My Twitter handle at the moment, although it won't be true probably very long, by the time this is out, maybe even, is the Donald Trump of intellectuals handed to me by a guy who just published an article that said, if you want to stop cancel culture, stop supporting the Republicans, which is as backwards as you can get it. That's Damon Linker, if you want to look him up. Um, but it was supported by lots of other very smart people, apparently most famously Steven Pinker, um, who it's impossible to think of this and not picture him in his very awkward dance uh, after the election. So this is a loss of authenticity was what this is. This is an inability to get in touch with yourself, to do the hard work of getting to know yourself, of going inside of yourself and understanding who you are, why you are that way, what your values are and how those link to the life that you want to live. In the book I wrote in the light of uh, life in the light of death, it sets that against our own mortality as the thing. In fact, not just our mortality, our inevitable extinction as a species, the inevitable extinction and destruction of not just this planet, but every planet uh, as the universe unfolds through the brutality of the second law of thermodynamics into a final uh, whatever it's going to be, whether it's going to be a big rip, a big crunch, a big squish, a big whatever they call it, or just the heat death of the universe, things aren't going to go well. And it's, it is actually the kind of vanity that we hear about in Ephesians to think that we're somehow bigger than this. And I understand that the Christian narrative gives us an option out of this. You will find that the, the woke progressive narrative does not give us an option out of this by contrast. But besides that point, what I said, well, if that's true, meaning has to be in that which is meaningful to you in your life. And what's most meaningful to you in your life is the stuff that's within your so-called three feet of influence. That work that you can do to improve yourself your family, your friends, your social network, your community that you find yourself in, and to the degree that you can reach out further the world. But you don't need this gigantic universal global purpose. Your purpose, all of the most meaningful stuff, all the stuff that touches you the most is going to be stuff that's within three feet of you, uh, metaphorically speaking. And so it was a call to bring purpose back closer to oneself so that one, so we can find authenticity again. So authenticity is the place that I think it really all begins, or at least that's the big scale. That's like kind of the, hmm, it's like, it's like the, the marker that we're getting healthier is that authentic people are emerging. Hipsterism becomes less cool. Pomo trad, where we kind of pretend to be traditional, uh, you know, we espouse traditional values and, and project six foot three, uh, macho manliness and, you know, all of this super projected, you know, cover for insecurity or whatever it is. Um, we throw all that crap away and we start to live authentic lives with each other for each other within the reaches that we have. And I think that that actually begins. And this is where I want to transition away from those wrong approaches, respectability, wrong. <laughs> you're, you're in a trap, man. You've got chains around your neck. Respectability of this kind of click is, is, is just a set of chains around your neck. That, that whole institution has been captured. Stop taking the blue pill. Take the red one. Get out. Uh, start thinking about life in a different way. If you're kind of on the edge of that, if you're faced with that choice of blue or red pill, take the red one. I, I promise, take the red one. The blue pill is not serving you and it's rendering you ineffective. Or if we're going to talk about this kind of uh, pomo trad approach, um, 
get real, get real, uh, really spend some time thinking about how people interact with one another and what people actually want out of life. They don't want Franco. They don't want a dictator. They do want their problems solved, but they don't want these things. This is not great. They also don't want inauthentic people pushing their movement. And I'm sorry if that ends up picking on that one young woman to bring up so much inauthenticity, but she basically wrote the same complaint as Baudrillard, uh, saying that she wishes she could be traditional. It's postmodern traditionalism, um, which is funny that I called it that before I even read the thing. And then I read it and I was like, see, um, and it's just poison, by the way, to just think in terms of power all the time. The problem with the woke is that the woke are thinking in terms of power all the time and that that's corrupting and polluting every other thing. Everything is not politics. They are wrong about that. The personal is not political. They're wrong about that. That's poison. You have to get that out of your head. You have to just start living your life authentically and connecting with people authentically. The thing they claim that they're trying to work to by inserting politics, and that's a poisonous way to think. So when you see the um, neo-reactionary type saying everything is power and we're in a war and blah, 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 well, I mean, in a sense, we are in a massive political war. Uh, political warfare is the main tool that's happening. And if you go online, we are actually in a global, like we're literally in a world war. Whether you want to count it as World War Three or World War Four, depending on if you count the Cold War or not, is up to you. But it's also still online. It's also still in the land of ideas and abstract idea space. It's it's poisoning the real world. It's creeping into the real world. But the real world is disconnected from that. And if you spend too much time thinking that that's the state of the real world, you're not authentic and you are going to end up LARPing and you're going to end up doing silly stuff that can have profoundly bad consequences. It's the exact same error that the woke make. I had a tweet the other day just to kind of close up on, on them before I move into what I want to talk about, which is a values-centered approach that I think is key to reestablishing a healthy liberal order that is able to maintain itself until we forget again or unless we forget again. Um, I did a tweet where I said, you know, the, the woke and the, the neo-reactionary crowd both say the same thing. And I don't have the tweet in front of me, so I'm going to have to riff it. But it's, you know, that liberalism is a problem. Therefore, we have to tear it up by the roots and install a new order where we have all the power and then everything will be better. They have the exact same message. The only difference is that they have this very subversive, deconstructive approach on the woke side, which is totally just going to take everything apart. And they have this kind of rickety... Uh, traditionalist approach on the other side with a kind of like open invitation to a strong man to step in and solve their problems for him. It's like a daddy complex or something. Uh, we'll kind of have a mommy complex. And so I say reject both. It's time to grow up. It's time to be adults. It's time to live as as adults. So if that means that I'm following Yarvin's advice, Moldbug's advice, and becoming advocating, I shouldn't say, I don't want to become, uh, but you know, the ascension of the worthy, if I'm encouraging people to become worthy, genuinely worthy, and step up into this role, I hope to do so in a way that drives from values and that those values are still going to be uh, preserving of the liberal order, which, you know, is an important and valuable invention. Uh, it certainly does have its weaknesses, and I think we do need to enter into the discussion of how to identify and gird liberalism against the exploitation of those weaknesses. And uh, it is, for example, I do agree with the post-liberal analysis that it was a little bit naive of the original liberals to think that the individual, without thinking of how that individual fits properly into social contexts, 
uh, was too extreme. I don't know what the right answer for how we deal with that is. I have made my argument on my other podcast, for example, that I think that we have misconstrued the fundamental unit of society in both the sort of right-wing case, which is the family, they argue, and the left-wing case, which is the um, institution. And the right-wing gets institutional with doing it in the church, which is a similar kind of thing. I said that it's your first-order social network, which maybe will include most of your family most of the time. Maybe not, you know. I had, for a long time in my life, certain among my cousins who were in my first order, but others who were not. Um, meanwhile, I had, you know, my immediate nuclear family, my brother, my parents. Um, but I also had the kid that lived next door and the kid that lived across the street. And, you know, the, my three best friends at school and those kind of, and then I went to college and, you know, the family ties weren't, they were still there, but they weren't as relevant to my day-to-day life. And I had the social group around me in college we were going through this. So this first order network around you is probably the fundamental unit of society. And it's interesting because it's going to be more diverse and less clannish than a family, but it should almost always include not just family, but kind of the networking of families who are related through friendship and other things. So there's a lot to explore there. I'm not going to try to solve that problem here today because I want to talk about the four values that I've laid out for a post-woke world. So I'm going to, now that I've talked about wrong approaches and I've kind of meandered and digressed a little, I want to dive in to how, as I worded it in an essay I wrote, you know, the values of a post-woke world on new discourses. I said, it's necessary now because I said, we're finally kind of, get, we're not winning yet. We have made the first, like we're establishing a beachhead. We are actually establishing a front to push back for maybe the first time in decades against wokeness. That's um, another dig on the Pomo trads who claim that they've been fighting this for years and people are finally catching up. Yeah, well, you got nowhere. Okay, you got nowhere. Whatever you're doing, you're doing it wrong because you got nowhere. And now people have stepped in with this other approach that they criticize relentlessly and call stupid relentlessly, and it's actually working. So, you know, maybe put a cap in it. Uh, I think I screwed up my metaphors. Put a cap on it. Put a sock in it. Just shut the fuck up. Okay? Like, go think a little harder. But anyway, what I said is, you know, we're finally making some progress. And if we're going to lead to a flourishing post-woke world, it's not yet clear what that's going to look like, but I make the argument that it has to be based in certain values. So we should set those values now. And I thought for a little while about what the key values are. I really wanted to get it down to three, but I ended up with four Um we could probably expand it to seven or eight uh, if we wanted to, but these values are, in my opinion, the core starting place where the, the four cardinal virtues or values that we should orient ourselves to. We should take them kind of like it's stupid to say that four things are a North Star, but we think of them as a constellation and place them in the position of the pole star. That's kind of what I'm talking about. And you're welcome to lean into whichever of the four that you think are most important, but I think that they're necessary for the establishment of a post-woke world that's full of promise and prosperity. And these four are, and I put them in this order for a reason. I think that the higher ideals are more necessary. And so I put them first. Truth is the first one I mention. Beauty is second. Liberty, which I have to actually, in the essay, I just called it liberty, but it's really liberty slash responsibility because liberty and responsibility are two key things. So if you want to have liberty, you've got to have responsibility. So responsibility is really more of the value that's necessary, but liberty is something your eye should be set on. I think as I've thought about it more since I wrote this, that responsibility is the key value that liberty springs from. And then the fourth is merit. 
we have to value merit. Uh, merit, in fact, uh, evaluation of outcome and judgment by outcome is going to have to be core to the uh, any world that intends to flourish. So I listed these in order. I'm just going to kind of go through the points I raise in the essay a little bit. And the first thing I point out is about truth. And of course, the biggest battleground is over the truth. I'm just going to focus kind of on the woke. Right now, the woke don't believe that objective truth is accessible. And in many cases, they don't believe that it exists. And they believe that claiming that we can even approximate the objective truth in a good enough way to have reasonable, not political consensus around the ideas, that that's just an application of power. This was, of course, Foucault's very generous contribution to the world of terrible thought, which is that that knowledge and power are literally just two sides of the same coin. And therefore, you know, any claim on the truth might be true or might be false, but that's not as relevant as the system of power that enabled somebody to make the claim and enforce it. That's what Foucault was all about. And, um, that's crap. It's a very, it's not crap. It's not just crap. It's extraordinarily dangerous idea because it's dangerously wrong because we do actually have the ability to say that method matters. This is why we can reject the neo-reactionary approach despite, for example, them having excellent analysis. I encourage everybody to read people like like so-called Menchus Mulbug, Curtis Yarvin. I also encourage you to read it with a grain of salt because method matters. If you get the method wrong, you end up with a Franco or a Pinochet and you end up with a river of blood and a military dictator. You can get your way out of communism, but there are better and worse ways. Um, you only want to go that way if it's literally your only option. And I'm not so black-pilled as these people to believe that it is. I think that we still have much more uh, opportunity to escape the problem than that. And I don't think that liberalism was the, was, was where we fell apart. And so method matters. Method matters then also in determining what ideas are worth pursuing. And when these ideas are based in especially the harder sciences, physics, chemistry, to a degree, many aspects of biology, there's not a lot of room for dispute. Um, when you talk about something like medicine, where you're literally having life and death consequences for getting it wrong, you really have a strong, strong impetus to get that right. Uh, this this kind of thing absolutely matters. And and what I, I really wanted to bring to the table here, though, is that the your truth versus my truth is nonsense. This is utterly nonsense. You can have your truth. This is how I see it. That's fine. That's not your truth. That's your opinion. That is a blurring of the word. That is your perspective. That is a blurring of the word truth. It is not your truth. It is not my truth. There is no such thing. There is the truth, and there are our guesses about it. Um, there's subjective heuristics I wrote that are useful to your own life, but they're meaningless beyond that. And it's past time we remembered that fact. We have to defer to the to the weight of evidence, the power of reason, and the process that has been called liberal science in order to try to get to the truth. What this requires is harder than most people are willing to admit, and this is why it's the, a key virtue, is it requires humility. The truth is a humbling concept. Whether you come at this from a religious perspective, as I do not, and see the truth in God, you can't challenge God. You have no place to challenge God. This is a good way to think about the truth. Even if you don't think that God is the truth, if you do think that, you're already halfway there, or more than halfway there. If you don't think that, the truth is in the same sense, literally in the same sense, bigger than you are. 
It is bigger than you are. It is outside of you. It is beyond your capacity to dictate what is and is not true. And if you try, the receipts will eventually catch up to you. The religious have this pretty well understood, and it's something we should all who are in the so-called secular or non-religious or whatever frame of mind, we should all stop and think about and learn from. I wrote in the essay, we as mere men are subject to the truth of the world and the truths of our own nature as beings in this world. In other words, human nature exists and we don't get to, we don't get to change that. There is, there is no new Soviet man on the horizon. There is no new liberated man as Herbert Marcuse argued in his essay on liberation in 1969 that we should be working toward. We should not be trying to become the cyborg as Donna Haraway had it in the 1980s or as Klaus Schwab the director of the World Economic Forum hopes in his so-called Great Reset and Fourth Industrial Revolution that the elite, the elect of the world, will get to become the cyborg. No, this isn't a good idea. There is human nature, and we are subject to our own nature. We're also subject to the world around us. And what we must do is have a broad conversation that very favorably, have, have, very heavily favors reason, evidence, and uh appropriate, targeted criticism. Criticism that doesn't necessarily first go out. It goes after the merit of the method of finding the idea, it, not, for example, the motivations of the person, although that's important. We have to look for conflicts of interest. And certainly doesn't just go after saying, well, that idea is something racist or sexist or evil or something that's not sufficient. Some truths are uncomfortable, and we have to actually deal with that. We have to humiliate ourselves before the truth in the same way that the religious believe that we should humble ourselves before God. Um, lies, I wrote, may for long be sustained against people. The Soviet Union lasted 70 years. But they cannot be sustained against the world, which merely is and doesn't change because we hope it will or, in our smallness and fear, believe we need it to change for us. So, this is why we have to put truth first. Uh, rather than talking about it religiously in terms of Christianity, in the essay I talk about it in terms of the Taoists who refer to it as the way, and they say that the world, that life goes best when you live in accordance with the way, the Tao. Um, that's what we really have to look for. Um, the process to finding truth is that we do have to, We the, the Enlightenment guys were right about this, we have to defer as much as possible to evidence and reason. We have to realize that as, as the human animal, part of our human nature, is not to think in terms of evidence that might disconfirm our beliefs, but rather to seek out evidence that tells us that we're right. That's called confirmation bias or even desirability bias. We are also strongly predisposed to want to find, uh, to call reasonable that which agrees with the people around us. In other words, to fit into our social group. That's what Jean-Francois Lyotard, the postmodern philosopher, correctly criticized as a, quote, legitimation by paralogy, or what I called paralogical uh, argumentation in my essay about psychopathy and totalitarianism. It's the idea that a consensus around us determines what's true, and that's not how this works. We have to defer toward evidence and we have to use reason that tries to overcome, when I say evidence, the totality of evidence. In fact, disconfirming evidence is what we should be seeking. This is what philosophers and scientists understand when they're good at their craft. 
but but also reason. We have to understand that the that the, the Enlightenment philosophers recognize that human beings are confirmation engines, confirmation bias engines, and social group bias confirming engines, desirability bias engines. And so that we have to slow down, as Daniel Kahneman had it in Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, and we have to step out of that intuitive way of thinking that's so quick and so natural and so useful for navigating the social world, 90% of our interactions, when we need to get right answers about things. Not when we have to get along with our friends or our neighbors or get through a, a dinner or whatever. Not when we're just hanging out, but when we're trying to get to the right answer about how stuff really works, about whether or not it's a good idea to put teenagers on puberty blockers or preteens, I should say, on puberty blockers, we got to slow down. We're not using intuitive reasoning anymore. We can't rely on ideological thinking. We have to defer to the evidence. We have to use the most reasonable and rational processes, which come out of our very uh, prefrontal cortex regions of our brain that are the slower, more deliberate, more reasonable side. There is a clear distinction between these two. It's been outlined well by Kahneman. It's been outlined well by Joshua Green, who talks about it in terms of automatic, like in a camera where the focus is very quick, and manual, where you really have to twist the knobs. The automatic focus is fast, but it's never going to be perfect, whereas the manual focus is really slow in particular, and you can get the exact perfect shot. You have to know when to be in each one of those modes, and when we're trying to get to right answers, when we're trying to get to truth rather than to navigate a social circumstance. We need to rely upon that slower, so-called manual approach. Maybe it's only 5 or 10% of the time of your life, 90, 95% you're intuitive and flowing. That's fine, but we cannot, when it comes down to getting the right answer and it mattering, throw out reason. We cannot see reason as an artifact of white supremacy that was meant to keep other ways of knowing out. The other ways of knowing are not ways of knowing, they're ways of interacting. And getting that clear is super important. So how does this process play out? Well, people are going to make mistakes. Their biases are going to be what they are. They're going to have blind spots. They're going to miss things. They're going to, um, they're going to have desirability and confirmation bias kind of ruling. They're going to have selection bias. They're going to use the availability heuristic. They're going to make all kinds of mistakes. And so that's where criticism comes in, not the ruthless criticism of everything that exists that Marx had advocated and the neo-Marxists and all the critical theorists ever since have brought up which doesn't even care if you get it right, but rather um, the kind that Jonathan Rausch outlines in his book, Kindly Inquisitors, as so-called liberal science, which has two fundamental principles. No one has special authority and no one gets final say. If we want to get to the truth, those have to be the rules, which means your lived experience, which is a form of special authority, doesn't carry much weight. It is a beginning point of a more rigorous analysis if we want to get to the truth. And nobody gets final say. So if you're, you present your lived experience and somebody says, well, I don't think that that matches the actual world, you don't get to say, you can't question my experience. You're denying my, my existence. Sorry, that's not the process if you want to get to truth. No one gets to become the arbiter of saying this discussion is closed. Every question can be asked and asked again and asked again, and every question can be brought to the table where we're going to judge it against the most objective standards that we can. For example, um, evidence is a very objective standard. For example, the reasonable person standard that we actually do have a reasonable person or a range of things that a reasonable person would accept as uh, typical and these kinds of standards are very important. The postmodernists for the woke have this completely wrong. The critical theorists took it very cynically and have manipulated it 
have it very wrong. So the value of truth must become sacred to us, and we must focus on where tr understanding wisdom is knowing when truth matters. Right? Uh, another way of putting that, my favorite, one of my favorite sayings is that wisdom is knowing when to break the rules, and. Um, what that means is that wisdom is knowing when truth matters. And when truth matters, we have to defer to these slow, painstaking, humiliating, and humbling processes where our best ideas are going to get smashed on the rocks of reality, and we just have to live with it because if we don't, we're going to take a bigger risk. We're going to pay the price of defying reality, or if you're religious, defying God is another way you could phrase it. It's not going to work out. So these values, the value of this has to be held sacred. And we had, it's knowing when that matters. The, the recipe is knowing uh, to hold truth as the top value, knowing when that matters. It doesn't matter when you're having your conversation with your friend about whether or not your friend's tea is good or whether, they, you know, they've gained weight or whatever. You don't have to always, you know, th that whole debate. Uh, yeah, okay, you know, you could tell your friend that she looks fat in her new jeans or whatever, but maybe it's just like, you know, whatever. Maybe being polite works out. But when you actually have to get to something that really, truly matters, really, truly matters, right or wrong, medical decisions, for example, uh, whether or not that bridge is going to be built to standard, whether or not the code is operating in a way, whether or not we're making uh, decisions that will absolutely infringe upon human freedoms in reliably and detectable ways, we have to slow down and defer to the truth. So you have to use wisdom to determine when the truth matters, and then you have to have the courage and the humility to live with truth. This is necessary. No society that flaunts the truth will flourish for very long. You have to flourish in the world as it is, which means you have to understand the world as it is. Um, it's, I said in the essay that this to value truth is to eschew fantasy and ideology and embrace reality. Um, this is possible. So the second value I advocate is beauty. Beauty, you know, normally I'm a little um, on the nerdy side myself. I know I criticize the dorks. We really do need to elevate the beautiful. Beauty is aspirational, as I said in the essay, which means, um, and even though it's a bit subjective, when you find something that you think is truly beautiful, and I think many of us obviously share things like this in common. You know, I saw a video shared on Twitter yesterday of a little boy uh, karate fighting blindfolded his dad in his military uniform and he doesn't know it's his dad. Um, he's just doing his blindfolded karate training and you know he rips his um, mask off at the end blindfolded and he sees his dad and just immediately like tackles him and hugs him you know the whole thing and it's just like super emotional. So there's something beautiful in that the human connection that realizing you know what it's like to see somebody you've missed for you know that long in those kinds of circumstances. Um something beautiful there. There's something beautiful in, you know, whether it's nature, whether it's an art, whether it's in a piece of music, another thing that's super kind of white pill, you know, we talk about the NRX black pill people will, you know, there's been this attempt to cancel sheet music. What was that? Like Oxford, they try to cancel sheet music. There's been this relentless war against classical music. So the other day, I was like, well, what's up with this? So I just typed in reaction videos because I don't know if you've ever seen these reaction videos. And I don't know why a lot of the time, not always, they happen to be like, usually black men making these videos and you know it's kind of clear by the way that they're talking that they haven't listened to a lot of music outside of you know kind of you know a rap or hip-hop or maybe r&b sort of um bubble because it's like they've never heard people like uh genesis or phil collins you know they've never heard dolly parton this is a big one they've never heard 
Guns and Roses. That was one I liked watching. And so I just typed in reaction video Beethoven. And so I'm watching this guy react to the first time he's ever listened to Beethoven. And this guy's just into it. Like it's melting his mind. You can tell. And like the emotional experience he has, he comes out of his first listen to Beethoven. I think it was Moonlight Sonata or something like this, or Beethoven's fifth, one or the other, because I listened to three or four of them. Then I listened to his reaction to Mozart. And I just listened to the whole thing. I listened to the whole, whether it's a sonata, whether it's a symphony, whatever it is. And then this guy, like watching him react to it in real time as he listens, his eyes closed, getting into the music, just feeling it, telling a story that he feels like it's trying to connect. This isn't some deep analysis of classical music. This is a man who's never heard it before connecting with it for the first time. He says he's a couple months in in one of the videos to listening to classical, and he's completely a huge fan, had no idea. It's kind of adorable. You know, he's calling them, you know, using the lingo he's familiar with, which is cool. He's calling the the composers artists and, you know, he's calling the 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 different um, pieces. He's calling them songs and he's like thanking the audience for giving him his feedback. You know, you're correcting me on the terminology. You're helping me get it right. It's really just kind of a beautiful thing. And the truth is, is that there are these kind of universal strands of beauty and some of the best music in the world, whether that's classical, which is in the cases when we are listening to classical music, if it's Mozart, it stood the test of 250 years. If we're listening to Beethoven, it stood the test of 200 years. And we're listening to uh, the Beatles. They've stood the test of 50 years. I'm not even a Beatles fan. I'm not a particularly, I don't particularly enjoy the music. But the truth is, is you can actually hear, there's that subjectivity there, but you can hear that there's something almost universal that connects there. And that aspiration to beauty, what the Greeks called arete, excellence, is an is something that connects people one to another, that shares something profound about the human experience that's difficult to articulate or quantify in kind of scientific or technical terms. Maybe it's even difficult to articulate or quantify at all. And that is, for me, what the humanities is always about. A healthy humanities focuses on beauty. It focuses on excellence. It doesn't focus on critique and complaining. It focuses on excellence, arete, uh, beauty. Um, in, in the essay, I said beauty is that which is excellent and that which it intends to be. And I think that's the key things. People ask me a lot. It's a silly story. They ask me, like, what's your favorite food? And I don't know the answer to this. I was even having a conversation with my wife about it the other day. I don't have an answer to what my favorite food is. I have certain things that I crave more than other at certain times, at certain dishes that I'm like, oh, I would love to have that again. You know, steak frites has been on my mind for a while, and I'm not sure why, which sounds fancy, but it's it's a steak and french fries. Um, it's just a great combination when you, when you get those things right. But I don't know, because I, I was talking to my wife, and I said, you know, Sometimes the the best food is Taco Bell, and Taco Bell. I say that because Taco Bell is, in some sense, objectively horrible, um, but it's not. And there, you can tell there's a difference. Like you've been to Taco Bell when they've screwed it up, and it's horrible. You've been to Taco Bell where you know whoever it was working in that fast food joint nailed it, and Taco Bell <laughs> reached its platonic ideal of Taco Bellness. That's a joke. I'm not a platonist, but anyway, you know they did it really well, and it's in and of itself beautiful. And sometimes Taco Bell is the best thing. It's what you want. Not usually, obviously, but steak frites or something, right? Fried chicken. Uh, fried, I'm a total, total weak weakness for fried chicken, but fried chicken, 
there's good and bad. In fact, a lot of the fried chicken, like burgers are the same way. A lot of the fried chicken or burgers that try to be good or screw it up. And they, they don't, they come out bad because they try to be too good. And so beauty is that which is excellent in that which it intends to be, right? And so excellence is the key to beauty. And as I say in the essay on New Discourses, that to dictate what is and is not beautiful, say to say that it's wrong, somebody's bad for finding something beautiful, is to rob humanity of its humanity. This cannot be the basis of any healthy society. Okay, so I, ideological movements like communism and wokeness love to tell you why it's problematic that you appreciate something, even when that something is, is being as excellent as it can be. Well, like what? Like masculinity, being as strongly masculine as you possibly can be in the way that, you know, as a man especially, you know, maybe they celebrate masculinity in females um, because that's subversive, but whatever, um, there's something beautiful in that. And we saw that, for example, in the classic art, you know, you see that in, what do you see in a lot, so much classic art? You see, you know, men looking masculine and often performing ask, acts associated with masculinity. Same thing with feminine beauty. Is there anything better? I mean, maybe I'm speaking as a, as a super straight man here, but is there anything better than feminine beauty? Uh, is there anything more uh, inspiring to make you want to go out and do something positive to, to, to win access to it? than feminine beauty natural beauty is great right you'll go hike some god-awful mountain to get get some natural beauty in your eyeballs but the key is that beauty and excellence something being great in what it's trying to be taco bell being good because it's the best taco bell it can be red what's your favorite wine the one that's that that speaks to the varietal and the land where it came from you know, one that, that was, was made well, one that was crafted well, where that it's not enough to get the product out, to have this bland commodity, which is what, you know, the woke going back, the neo-Marxist said that that's what, that, that's what we're robbed of through capitalism, which is absolutely incorrect. That's what we are able to accomplish when capitalism allows people to have the sufficient means to be able to pursue excellence in their own chosen paths. If you want to do excellent reaction videos and that's your gig on YouTube, good. And if you want to do excellent wine, good. If you want to do like, you know, you want to go read J.R. Tolkien and get all geeked up and decide that you're going to plant the best garden like the hobbits or craft the best natural kind of living environment or make the best cordials like the elves or if you're going to build the best works of stone or organization of masonry or what if blacksmithing or whatever like the doors if that's your thing bring it to the world beauty is that which is excellent and that which it intends to be try to bring that those, those classical ideals back to, to to the front and do it in a way that connects with this weirdly kind of you know deconstructive world that we live in where's the beauty in that where can you do deconstruction in a way that makes it beautiful. That's a challenge for today's time. That's art that's going to connect. That's going to reach these people who think that we live in a desert of the real because it hits that that postmodern note, but then grounds them back into beauty. My friend, artist Dorian Vallejo, makes excellent paintings that are of this type. They, they pull just the right elements out of this kind of digitized, modern, 
deconstructed postmodern or postmodernity shaped world and they're able to do something he's able to to pull that back into beauty in just a gorgeous way there are others you can do this too um i say that the call to center beauty in a post-woke world is a call to a second renaissance that pulls humanity up and out of the cynical pessimistic mire of modernism and postmodernism. it helps us prevent that crisis of authenticity Okay, beauty is the call, I say, to be better in everything we do, everything we build, and everything we aspire to be. It is the cornerstone of a flourishing post-woke world. If we want to flourish, we have to find what stirs us as man. And what stirs us as man is beauty. Uh, Truth is necessary in a sense, but it's not sufficient. Beauty adds to the sufficiency. In fact, it offers more of the sufficiency uh, than truth. So about liberty and responsibility, um, they're really the same kind of thing. I think that liberty is the ultimate birthright of, of man. I agree with the founding fathers of the United States. I agree with the uh, religious people who have made this case that um, human beings, individual humans, in fact, are born uh, as free citizens of this world. They live within polities and therefore have to conform to the... Uh, the, the laws of the states in which they live, and so that those states have an obligation to secure liberties that are the providence of men not to grant privileges to them, okay? So I say that liberty is threatened by the woke ideology um, in its relentless bid to gain power, which it confuses for empowerment. So uh, we have to lean into true empowerment and with our eyes on being free people, free individuals, free, even uh, if we want to talk in terms of the necessity now to to form communities, but free volitional communities that come together, made up of individuals who want to share common philosophy or common uh, metaphysics or common beliefs, that liberty has to be preserved and the path to that is genuine empowerment, and that genuine empowerment comes from taking responsibility. Um, the problem is that, of course, liberty is in tension, I write, with uh, security. It's also in tension with liberty itself. Those are two kind of difficult points around liberty. How is it in tension with security? Well, the more free you are, the more free you are to get hurt. <laughs> the more free you are to cause a problem the more free uh, you are to spread or catch a virus. For example, in the present circumstances, uh, as we've just lived through. And so freedom entails risk. Liberty entails risk. And the way that you can mitigate that risk is either through control or through responsibility. In other words, through external control or through self-control and through choosing to do the right thing for yourself. And this is a very important thing for people to grapple with. Security does go down when people are freer. If you absolutely controlled everybody, if you absolutely just locked everybody in their homes and uh, kept them trapped, you know, in a very safe environment with no sharp objects and blah, 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 padded rooms or whatever, the chances are that they're not going to hurt themselves or get hurt uh, the way that they might in a wilder world. We see this. I mean, that was a stupid kind of exaggerated example. But a better one is with this kind of helicopter approach to parenting where we never let kids fall and break arms and never let kids... Who wants a kid with a broken arm? Nobody wants to deal with that. Nobody wants to have that. 
But the problem is, and I think Jordan Peterson has probably pointed this out the most uh, powerfully and eloquently, is that you take another kind of risk when you try to mitigate other risks. Everything in the risk world is trade-offs. It's all about trade-off one risk to another. So you can imagine that padded room, you're going to go crazy. You weren't crazy when they put you in the padded room necessarily, but you will be by the time somebody else opens that door, you know, not too long later. Uh, the risk of raising a child who's never taken any risks, who's never put themselves into dangerous situations and sometimes lost, is that the child is unlikely to understand the nature of living in a world where risk-taking is part of the equation, that getting hurt is sometimes the result, that everything is not going to just be automatically safe and that one does actually have to take responsibility for oneself in order to navigate a world that is inherently risky and the risk is always there. So there is a tension between liberty and security. If we had total liberty, the, the easiest example to see this with is traffic, for example. If we had total liberty, you know, traffic would be chaos. So what would happen is we either have traffic laws or we would end up developing traffic norms like you see in, in you know, countries like India, for example. If you ever watch Google that or use your favorite not Google search engine to look that up and watch traffic in some of these other countries where their traffic laws are looser or different, um, there are still strong norms. People figure out, I mean, driving here in the Southeast where things are one way and then sometimes traveling to LA, I see that the traffic norms are tremendously different. There are things that people do in Los Angeles to pull out into traffic because there's a gap and you kind of like create your gap. They do this in New York City and probably in lots of cities that if you tried to do that here in a kind of semi-rural area in, in East Tennessee, the, the guy that you're kind of like wedging in on will probably speed up and hit you just to hit you. Like there are, there are different norms. Like here, it's a very wait your turn. But in Los Angeles, if you, everybody had to wait their turn all the time, nobody would get anywhere. So there are laws and there are norms, but you can see how the more secure you try to make the situation, um, the, the less liberty people are going to have and vice versa. The more free you make the situation, the more often you're likely to run into traffic accidents and collisions and, you know, other problems. You know, another good example with that would be, you know, do you have vehicle uh, inspections and registration or whatever? And obviously there are lots of problems with that. But if you're if you're driving a jalopy, pieces are more likely to fall off than if they're not. And that's going to generate other issues. Just to throw some ideas out there. Does not to try to resolve this tension here it's to point out that there is an inherent tension between security and liberty. Um, if I had absolute liberty and were the type of person that went around shooting people, you know, that would be a bit of a problem. So taking some of my liberty to shoot somebody away from me uh, becomes a situation in which that kind of violence is reduced and thus people can feel more secure. And to have actually a flourishing society, you do have to have a measure of security, but you also have to have enough liberty to be able to use that security. So these two things exist in tension. The other aspect is that liberty exists in tension with itself because we are not individuals who live totally on our own island, as it's been said. We are, in fact, individuals who live with other individuals who also have their liberty. So my exercise of liberty might infringe upon your exercise of liberty and vice versa. And so there is a tension between liberty and itself. And so the way to navigate these tensions is responsibility. So responsibility becomes a cardinal virtue. If we're talking about dealing with the woke, they're like allergic, pathologically allergic to responsibility. What do they primarily do? They try to blame the system when stuff doesn't go their way. They don't talk about things in terms of individuals. They talk about it in terms of collectives. They don't want to enforce 
uh, or they don't want to force people to figure out life for themselves. They want people to be forced into categories and collective groups, political blocks who uh, operate kind of with one one mind in a sense. It is collectivism. And uh, why? Because it diffuses the responsibility into that of the group. And you can now blame entire other groups for one group can be blamed for another group's problems. And then the individuals within it have a way to defer both blame and responsibility. Um, collectivism is kind of like enforced teamwork, whereas individualism allows for teamwork. And responsibility is sort of, again, the mediator. The woke try to displace responsibility off of themselves and place responsibility onto others. The downside to this, because everything's a trade-off, without ever taking responsibility, not only do you never grow, not only do you you ever uh, have the opportunity to to understand how your actions connect to the outcomes that you maybe do or don't want in life. Um, but you also, by eschewing responsibility, um, you create conditions in which uh, flourishing almost becomes impossible and security has to be granted by... Uh, kind of some outside entity, usually for them, the state. And so this is really a threat to liberty to think in this way. Um, and really, this is at the heart of the entire woke ideology. You go back, you know, whether you talk about communism or liberationism within the neo-Marxist paradigm, the idea is that when everybody has the same same set of perfect consciousness, you know, critical consciousness, class consciousness, racial consciousness, whatever, these consciousnesses, feminist consciousness that they're always trying to wake up, when everybody thinks the same way, everybody's on board, and then the ideas of the society start to get perfected, aha, then we'll have a totally free society. Well, what they're hoping for with liberation then is freedom without responsibility. But because the world isn't perfectible, that's a lie. Freedom without responsibility is just a world that's going to fall apart. And where people who have more capacity to manipulate the situation, whether by force or other forms of coercion, are going to seize all of the power and dictate everybody else. And nobody's going to have any freedom except for the people at the top of that pile. It's an absolute disaster. So liberty is the third core value, and liberty is created through taking responsibility, or they're actually two values that are connected so closely that they can't be separated from one another. Um, Liberty and responsibility is the third that I advocate getting to a post-woke world. And finally, I advocate merit. This is getting a bit long, so I'm going to try to tidy this up without diving into too much more. But merit is a measure upon which a a flourishing society is built. It's results-oriented. It is the combination of talent and effort. Okay, so it's not fair that some people are more talented in certain ways than others, and some people end up on the rather short end of most sticks, and some people end up on the long end of many sticks, and that's genuinely a unfairness baked into life. So talent is what it is. Effort, however, is within people's range to do something about. You can decide to take more responsibility, to put in more effort, to study harder, to train harder, to work harder. You have to to achieve, though, work smart and hard. You have to, it's not enough to work hard. You could go out and work hard beating the dirt with a hammer all day long, and you're never going to achieve anything out of this, and you're not going to be rewarded because you're not producing anything of merit. It is a combination of talent and effort to produce a result that has value. 
So what you have to do to have merit is you have to figure out what you know what has value and then to dedicate your effort to honing your talents to getting into to getting into that. And if your talents aren't there, you're better off to find something else. You want to find something within your range of talents and then hone that through your effort and apply that effort. But the most important thing is that merit is a in a sense is a measurement of success. It is a measurement of getting results. And so if we care about having flourishing in our society, which we should, we have to value merit. We have to value people who get results. We have to therefore reward people who get results. And there have to be incentives for people who are able to get results that are not afforded in equal share, equity being a terrible idea, to people who are not getting results. Your beat poetry might make you feel good, but you don't need to be paid for it. The society is not going to work that way. And when you break down a rich, flourishing system enough, nobody has time to be a beat poet because they all end up having to be subsistence farmers, either for themselves, if you beat yourselves back into a peasant situation, or at the barrel of a gun if you end up in something like your so-called communist utopia that's never showing up. Um, The liberation claim is nonsense. The world is also competitive. We should encourage that. We should accept this is truth, right? We have to accept how the world actually is. Um, and we have to try to outcompete those who already understand this. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, you know, China, for example, is not slouching on the merit department just because America's decided that it's white supremacist. They're just seeing it as an opportunity to take over. And they will if we dither with this too long. Because uh, without good results, bad things happen. And by putting people in positions that have demonstrated the quality to achieve good results in the station that they're in under, if it's an economy that divides labor, as we probably should, uh, you know, whatever niche that they're in, you have to reward people who are actually good at this. This is why the diversity push, diversity and equity are just nonsense against the idea of merit. They are ways to subvert merit and put something else in its place that's not going to work. And the thing is, is it's just another form of corruption. It's corruption based on people who either, depending on how naive your views about diversity, equity, and inclusion are, that look like so-and-so or look like this or that, or um, usually it's actually more realistically about their politics. Do they show the politics that the current uh, political takeover ideology favors? And... This is just another form of corruption. We dislike favoritism. We dislike nepotism and cronyism. We dislike country clubism, respectable people, very smart people. We dislike bigotry. We dislike these corruptions. The woke are corrupt. Wokeness implies corruption. Wokeness carries corruption. Why? Because it devalues merit in terms of something else. Merit is the one thing that actually cannot, that is not corrupt. Merit is the answer to corruption. Put people in the roles who are the best people for those roles. It's all figuring out what criteria decide that. So with diversity, they claim that they're doing this, by the way, by saying that they're finding people with different perspectives and different backgrounds for different particular reasons. And we should honor the idea that when those reasons are good or fitting and they have results attached to them that are actually important for what's going on, okay, fine. Like, for example... If the United States military wants to make a diversity push and they say that one of the things that we need 
are people who are kind of culturally able to blend in, say, with some other culture that, you know, we're going to do a security operation in. That's a reasonable request. It makes sense. But if they say that we need diversity because we have to figure out some kind of like, you know, quota that matches what American citizens look like in some way, this is this is nonsense. It has no particular value. And the argument that the woke give is that, well, people from different backgrounds have different perspectives and those different perspectives are going to bring in different cultural backgrounds and different knowledges. There are not different knowledges, by the way. Those are going to come in and create a... Per no. Clearly state why you need the diversity that you're claiming that you need, and then bring it in. This can be diversity of, of, of expertise. This can be a lot of different kinds of diversities. and uh, But you have to be able to make a good argument for it. And then people actually, when they get put in those positions, actually have to be merited for those positions. We want to avoid those corruptions. Wokeness is corruption. Um, there are limits on merit. Merit is an ideal you know, I don't want to harp on how the, the woke just crap all over merit, but merit is an ideal. Um, we only know so many people. We are favor. We do tend toward favoritism. We do tend toward nepotism. You know, we have a, if my friend recommends somebody for a job, I tend to trust my friend more than, you know, some random applicant. And this is in a sense, a form of corruption that can undermine merit, which is why we need to elevate merit as much as possible. That's why we need things like standardized tests as a significant part of admissions criteria or placement criteria. This is why we need minimum standards. Like if you are going to be, whether it's in the military, whether it's at becoming an actuary or whatever, that there's a minimum standard that doesn't move for anybody. And if you pass a minimum standard, it doesn't matter who you are. You qualify to go to the next round of, of decision-making processes, whether it's hiring or whatever it happens to be. We have to actually... Um, hold up those standards and not bend them for people, which, by the way, is the so-called soft bigotry of expectation uh, of, of low expectations. So um, we have to value merit. Merit is core to a post-woke world. It has to be put forth. The woke hate it. It's like kryptonite to them to tell them that they actually have to achieve because wokeness is ultimately just kind of glorified complaining in a particular way. You very frequently find people who are woke for a variety of reasons, including their general uh, dislike of responsibility and tendency toward an external rather than internal locus of control to avoid self-blame or whatever it is. You actually find them very frequently not real keen on the idea of merit or of, of, of standards that hold them up to they have to achieve or else, um, or else none for them, you know? So valuing merit in that way actually minimizes corruption and it's kryptonite to the woke for that reason. It also spurs innovation and entrepreneurship because it taps into that competitive nature. It encourages people. If people believe that if I can figure out a way to do something better than is being done, then I have a chance of making a success for myself, not just contributing to the society, but making a success for myself. Uh, then they're, they're more likely to participate in it. Merit spurs innovation and entrepreneurship. It lifts up societies by that means because in innovation and entrepreneurship lead to a more prosperous and functional society that offers people more options to exercise their liberty. Um, so we have to value merit. We have to value merit in truth-finding. We, we have to value merit also in beauty. It's not purely subjective. We ha there is excellence. Remember I said that the beauty is being excellent in what it's intended to be. 
that means we have to be able to value merit, whether it's in the arts or whatever else. Um, well-played Beethoven is a world different from poorly paid Be- played Be- Beethoven. So kind of to wrap up, in the essay, one last point that I make is why not justice? Or, you know, just justice, question mark. Why not justice? Why isn't justice, you know, social justice, critical social justice, racial justice, climate justice, reproductive justice, 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 justice is every freaking third word we hear these days, justice. Why isn't justice one of my core values? And I say that because justice can't lead it has to follow. If we want to actually have justice, it has to come from a basis in truth, beauty, responsibility, or liberty, and merit. If we get that backwards, if we try to get justice without truth, we're only going to just continue to create conditions for injustice. If we try to get justice without beauty, maybe we're going to end up with something, you know, strictly just. Uh, it's probably the least relevant, but we have to have an eye for what is truly good. We have to have that aspiration to a better society that's caught up in beauty. Um, if without it, we're not going to achieve a high standard of excellence. And so justice is going to suffer. Without liberty, there's certainly not going to be any justice because liberty implies um, liberty implies being ultimately that you are a free individual at the end of the day, right? And so if we don't have liberty, there's not going to be justice because when you get shackled into some collective or group, or if your liberty is restricted without sufficient cause, uh, then there's going to be injustice. We have to keep an eye on liberty if we're going to achieve justice. Men must be free and their liberty must be valued before justice has any hope of coming into the world. Even though there's this balancing act, right, we still have to put liberty first if we want to have justice. We can't have justice in a situation, for example, that um, would assume guilt over innocence, even though this creates an imperfect result. Sometimes guilty people get away. We have to assume innocence. Why? Because you are free ahead of the privileges granted to you. It's not privileges granted to you by the state. You're free ahead of what would be privileges granted to you by the state. You are free before that, right? So you have to be presumed innocent. Otherwise, they if you are actually innocent, you're being held unjustly. So we have to presume liberty to get to a model of justice that's actually going to work. This was a lesson that we learned hard through history. And the same thing in merit. Justice is never going to come about if we don't actually care about how people have their talents, how they apply them, and the value that they produce in the effort. Okay? You're never going to get a just outcome. Giving somebody something that they did not earn is not just, and people will reject it. So you try to cook the books by putting justice ahead of merit, you're going to get it wrong. So justice follows from getting other core values correct, and in fact it is negated by getting those other core values wrong. So it is absolutely necessary that we have truth and beauty, liberty, responsibility, and merit at the front of our thinking. Uphold those as core values. And those values, taken as kind of a constellation of of a pole star, will allow us to create a post-woke world that climbs out of this attempt at darkness and back into the light. And that light will bring prosperity and flourishing to the various societies, the people, and to mankind overall. 
So this is what I say in the essay at the end is that the building a post-woke world is now our charge. It's something we now have to start thinking about. We now are establishing a beachhead against wokeness in a way they can actually take, in a way they can actually succeed. It's not hampered by the weakness of so-called respectability country clubism. It's not hampered by being kind of an overreaction the wrong way. We actually can build the world that is going to flourish in a post-woke situation, and we have to set our eyes on these values. Truth, justice. I'm sorry, truth, not justice. (laughs) I started to go into the whole Superman thing. Truth, justice in the American way. No, truth, beauty, liberty, which is to say responsibility and merit. And I say that to close, I say that a post-woke society isn't tasked with realizing these truths, these facts, so much as it is with remembering them. We already know that those are the things. These ideals were already understood before. They were the basis for a prosperous society that we've been enjoying and growing in and prospering in and spreading around the world. You see people flock to the West. Maybe that will change now under this uh, new circumstance, but up until so long as the West has been free and is focused on truth, beauty, uh, liberty, responsibility, and merit. People have flocked to the West because it's a prosperous, flourishing society, and you don't see it as much the other direction. You don't see people flocking to communist or socialist states. And this was a state that was already, wasn't perfect in any of these regards, and it wasn't perfect in terms of achieving justice because it fell short of these values, but it was rapidly improving itself toward ever greater justice, and it has done so on a trajectory that's been faster and more successful than any society in the history of the world. So our task is to remember that these values, uh, truth and beauty, responsibility and merit, are the cornerstone to building the society that we want to occupy as we start to move toward a successful, flourishing, post-woke world.